five, four, three, two, one, and here we are with Peter Hyatt. Many of you have been clamouring for Peter to come on and answer questions, especially about the Madeleine McCann case. We put out a notification yesterday. We've had hundreds of questions have come in. Um, we've got Peter for approximately 30 minutes, so we will try and get as many of the pertinent questions in as possible. Before we start, Peter, you know I, I understand your background and what you do, but for viewers who are not familiar with your work, could you just give them a brief overview? Yes, I work Thanks in, for coming on. in detecting deception for law enforcement and uh, private businesses. That's like a broad overview of what I do. And what got you interested in that? Being gullible. <laughs> are you saying that you were taken advantage of? Many times early on, I was always fascinated by by words, and um, that's my background, and that's my love. So I ended here. And what's your educational background? Um, among other things, theological, uh, some philosophy, but it, it was English, uh, the English language, and um, words that caught my interest the most, and learning how to listen, that sort of thing. So when you're applying that skill then, what are you looking for? Is it the type of words that are used? Is it the voice inflection? No, it's actually the words that are used. It's not the body language. It's not the, the tonal inflection. It's the words that are chosen. And um, sometimes it's a little bit tricky for people when they first hear it. But uh, the premise is that I believe what someone's telling me. And even if they're deceptive, which is generally by withholding information, what they do say is often true and can help investigators. And so I do the trainings for, for example, for law enforcement and, um, but also for business. And law enforcement are the most easy trainings because they, uh, they don't wrestle with human nature. They understand human nature. They, uh, they do have to learn to let the words guide them and trust them. But I think they do a really good job in uh, what we call a psych psychological linguistic profile of someone where they get to know someone's personality, uh, oftentimes very quickly, just from the constant uh, exposure in law enforcement. They see people, uh, here we have our emergency line number and just one after another after another, they're put on these high, what we call hormonal consequence calls, where someone is really revved up, they're very afraid, they're very angry, whatever it may be, they're seeing human nature. And so they're able to grasp it quite well, I think. And obviously, the Madeleine McCann case is something you've looked at. What are the other big cases that you've looked at? Well, that's one that has really just captured people's attention. I was originally involved, uh, just someone had said, hey, can you take a look at a a missing child in um, the UK. And so I said, you know, send me a transcript. I'll take a look at it. And uh, I found that the parents were deceptive, which you know, we can go into a little bit today. Um, later on, uh, Richard Hall asked to do an interview, and um, I didn't know it was any type of big deal or anything like that. And uh, he flew over to, to Maine and uh, he allowed me to speak. He allowed me to, to uh, answer questions, explain myself. And what it came down to was this, is that when the McCann spoke publicly, 
people have a, an opinion, whether they believe them, they don't believe them, they're going to reserve judgment. What I was doing was saying, I don't believe them, but here are my reasons why. And I, I think that was an important part. So I like when people say, oh, no, I, I think the, the McCanns are telling the truth, and here's why. It's, it's kind of in short order uh, as emotions take over. But I'm able to say, I believe someone or I don't believe someone. Here are their words, and here's why I say that. And I, I think even uh, as time has gone on, the more we've heard from German prosecutors, for example, uh, I've seen empirically that more people are saying, you know, I was on the fence about it, but um, this is really more and more appearing to me that the parents were involved. And I think there's, there's things within the language that are very difficult to get past. So those are some of the things that I'd like to talk about if we can. Absolutely. So how do you decipher then aberrations from somebody being in the shock of losing a child and the abnormal behavior that could follow? In, um, in a sit-down interview, there is an expectation that we have um, with a lot of background data. And it basically says this, when a parent loses a child, there are now an engagement of parental capacities that are in overdrive, including during shock. Um, so for example, if I were to announce today that you have won this multi-million dollar lottery and you believe me, you're going to have a hormonal response. It's, wow, that's, that's amazing. In other words, there'll be an accompaniment in your thinking by a rush of adrenaline, for example. When, and I use myself as an example, when my daughter was little, when she cried, I picked her up. When she was hungry, I fed her. When she needed changing, I changed her. I responded so often, and all parents do this, so often that it becomes second nature. We have this tremendous love. We, we actually see it in nature. You think about a mother bear robbed of her whelps <laughs> here in Maine. Don't go near a, what if you see cubs, stay away. The mother will, will tear your pieces. So we have, it's called protective, protective capacities of parents. And when a child goes missing, uh, and let's use my, myself as an example. When my daughter got older, she fell. I picked her up, I put a Band-Aid on her. I took care of her. When she had trouble with school, I, I helped her with school. Whatever it may be, I was always doing for her. Now she's missing. I can't do for her. What I am consumed with is what she may be experiencing right at this moment. And so if you were to interview me, you would find my words and language, as innocent parents do this, goes right back to what the unknown. The horror writer Stephen King said that he could never write anything um, in horror that could match a parent's imagination. We all worry about our children, we're frightened, but when they're outside of our ability to care for them, that engagement is powerful. In fact, it is the priority, it's all they care about. And so you, you'll hear things like, especially with a toddler, does she have her favorite blanket? Does she have her, are they feeding her? Do you know she takes this type of medicine or that? She doesn't like that food. They can't stop themselves. 
if that's absent, that's a red flag. And what we find uh, in many, many cases where parents are indicated uh, in the death of a child is a lack of concern for what the child is experiencing. So in that brings us to a conclusion, either the parent and parents plural are sociopathic-like, just absolutely no care, and, and every so often that comes up, or they have processed the death, they've accepted it. The natural denial that we all feel in life and death, they've gotten past that. They're into a survival mode themselves. And so as I listened to the interview, uh, and not so much listening, but going through the transcript very carefully, what I found missing from them was a priority of concern for what Madeline was going through. There was no linguistic commitment to a kidnapping. When realistically, according to what they were presenting, it should have been front and center. This person took the... There's uh, there was no calling out to her. And that's something that we look at and say, man, that's, you know, that's not natural. They were concerned about their image, very much so. Uh, their priority was, was self, um, which goes against all instincts. I don't think they're sociopaths. And I'll, you know, get to that in a little bit, but the need to reach out, to care for, and then to have that need taken or robbed or stymied is a powerful element within the language, including trauma. Mothers of missing children um, stay up at night thinking at every last moment of, of their time together, and they constantly call detectives to say, hey, I just thought of this, I just thought of that. Even after the child is found deceased, the parents are still in denial. And this was all missing from the, from the McCann case. And so, it, you know, it became kind of a, a, a very popular case. And then it, it started to die out a bit, but the McCanns kept it going. And I have some very strong uh, opinions on the case, but I have a reason for those things. Um, over the years, as the case just grew, and at times, I believe that the McCanns, with their fundraising and everything else, were doing nothing more than aggravating the public. Um, I found that most of the supporters of the McCanns, who believed the McCanns, I found them to be people of goodwill, people who simply could not accept that um, parents could be responsible, or the parents could be lying about what happened. And then there was always, uh, and this is on the, both sides, there's always fringe who assign motives. Um, for example, I, I recall years ago uh, being inundated with um, emails and social media comments that uh, I was responsible for Madeline's death, if she's dead, because by saying that I don't believe the parents, people are stopped searching. You know, and that's kind of an emotionally unhinged comment. Or what a horrible human being I am, which Heather will give odds on, but a horrible human being that I am 
for um, inflicting pain after 16 years or whatever it's been uh, on the parents by not believing them. When I speak publicly, and I'm, and I'm doing that now, people will either believe me, not believe me, or you know, give some time to think about. And that's their right to do. And this, that's the expectation when I speak. Uh, they can say that, you know, this guy's nonsense or, hey, he makes sense. And that's great. And I like to engage with other opinions. I'd like to hear other things. And so it really started to change when the German prosecutors brought out information. And what I found was the headlines and the German prosecutors' statements weren't congruent. And so <laughs> I would get a lot of social media, are you going to apologize to the McCanns? Um, or if body language analysts said, no, they're telling the truth, are you going to apologize to the McCanns? And I said, I still don't believe them. Let's wait upon what this evidence is. And um, eventually Christian Bruckner was named as a suspect. And this is, uh, it's been for a while, but this has been the fourth year now where they've gone to the public with alleging that they have evidence, they know she's dead, this sort of thing, but can't prosecute. And that, I think, has worn people down where it's become, we've heard this before, and even their statements don't show that they're convinced of their own words. And that's why I concluded that they're, they're into this for uh, publicity stunts. A Netflix or commentary or book sales or fame, that sort of thing. We have a case over here in the United States, the John Benet Ramsey case, which was a parallel. It uh, predated Madeline McCann. But the same type of, of drawing lines on either side where people have very strong opinions. Um, when I originally did the analysis of the McCanns, it wasn't something of great talent or I, I did some brilliant analysis. No, I simply listened to them. It wasn't difficult even. So if my child, if my little girl that I've been talking about, if she is missing and been taken, I'm going to say they kidnapped her right out. Not she has been taken with the emphasis. She's been kidnapped. The kidnapper has her. Do you know she needs this or that? She has to have this or that. Uh, she's experiencing this or that. And now I'm wild, wild and upfront with the language. And I, honey, if you're listening right now, I'm going to find you. We're going to get you back. You know, that sort of thing. That's the priority. But when it's to, um, to go even to the point of sarcasm, where Kate McCann said, we must have hidden her incredibly well. I believed her. I believed her words. It's like uh, if you had a teenage daughter or a young, you know, young daughter who's of dating age, and the young man says, no, Mr. Hyatt, if I was you, I wouldn't believe me either. Take his advice. Listen to him. It's his, his <laughs> words being formed. Sarcasm, when your child is missing, is incongruent with your priority that's supposedly to recover the child. 
That was another thing. That is what we look at as an embedded admission, where she's able to form the words while her daughter was missing, that they hit her incredibly well. I also think of what happened to her. Uh, can we talk about that for a few minutes? Absolutely. People are often surprised to learn that healthcare professionals may have issues with substance abuse. And it really shouldn't surprise us. Um, doctors, for example, see sick people all the time. All the time. That's somewhat depressing. And the rates of substance abuse surprise people there. A medical professional reminded me recently that that can be even higher with anesthesiologists. So I was thinking about that. And uh, he had said the access they have to different drugs and that sort of thing. And I was thinking about a case I had many years ago investigating child abuse against a doctor. And the doctor, pediatrician, was drugging children. And it's like a shock to the senses that a pediatrician would be doing that. And my task was to interview him. And he spoke very plainly. He didn't deny it. He had acknowledged it. That he had been, um, he called it his cough syrup. In the cough syrup, he had added in codeine, a narcotic, to make the children sleep. And he said, Peter, I do this with children of whom the parents are abusive or, or the mother's boyfriend are abusive. And the child doesn't sleep. And, and that's a whole other world of, of trouble. He said, so if they give them this cough syrup, the child sleeps and doesn't get abused. And we can agree or disagree with his logic, but he had a reason for, for doing what he was doing. And he had to give up his license to practice medicine because of it. Uh, I've interviewed countless number of parents who have done similar things with, um, right now it's very popular with melatonin, but uh, cough syrup with antihistamines, which make makes children sleepy. Um, this doctor had said that uh, you have a, a, a burden of proof necessary to remove a child from an abuser's care. And that's good because it protects all of us. But I make the reports. I do the due diligence. I can't. I know that if this child gets up in the middle of the night, mom's boyfriend is going to go off on him. And so that's what he was doing. So it, it's not... Uh, it's not terribly shocking. Uh, you know, I was used to it, of course. So when Kate was talking about her last moments with Madeline, she could tell us anything. She could tell us face expressions, her eyes, anything that mother and child would, would be important to her. Whatever she chooses to say is going to be needed to be heard by us. What a person says is important if we're listening. And she went to putting something in Madeline's mouth. That's where her brain went as she's considering all these things. So I'm listening to someone who not only 
had an embedded admission. We hit there incredibly well. But in those last moments of recall, talked about something going into the child's mouth. I think most parents would have said, I never should have left her. Why did I do that? How horribly selfish of me to go out to dinner and to, to leave this behind. And the regret and the remorse would be, especially if you believe that she's gone um, and deceased, would be horrible. But in any case, that would be front and center. Besides finding her, as you look at the different priorities being broken down, what is she going through? We must find her, calling out to her. What have I done? How, how dare I go and leave three children? I don't care how close it was. Um, parents, won't, they won't go to a different room without a monitor on, baby monitor on. And they decided to put their needs first. And if you listen to that interview, their needs are first. And it's been that way ever since. It kept it going. So that was uh, one of those kind of easy tells that um, they processed her death and they're responsible for it. Now, do I believe, I know a lot of people do, but do I believe that this was intentional? No, I don't. Uh, it was a homicide uh, by negligence. And perhaps I believe, and this, this is based on that, um, some form of chemical restraint. Put her to sleep. It didn't work out or it went too far. I don't know. Yeah, I've got a two-month-old baby here and I'm absolutely hypervigilant. And you're just constantly thinking about anything that could possibly happen. And, you know, even me and my partner, always one of us is on top of the situation never letting him out of our sight so nothing can happen and all kinds of things just constantly go through your head but we've got a few questions come in then um so warrior queen is asking does peter think that the mccann's friends lied about what happened so i haven't done a lot of work on it um but it wouldn't surprise me i've looked at a few things and said that ah, that's a weak commitment when, for example, when the pronoun I goes missing or jumps to something else, that makes me take notice. Um, now, I can understand biological parents talking together or uh, friends who are talking together can use we and our and that sort of thing. Um, but ultimately, this is very personal. And this was a very at high risk, based on her age, Madeline's age, incapable of self-protection incapable of self-surviving, which you know, puts it in different categories. So yeah, I'm suspicious of that. Of that. Question from FS. Can you please ask Peter, what are the indicators, if any, that Maddie died in that apartment? And what are the indicators for accidental versus intentional death? Also, is there anything that says the parents conceal the body? Okay, three things to look at. The first one was um, that they did not show the care for Maddie while she was missing as their priority in language. It wasn't a priority. That tells me the parents are either sociopathic, which I don't think so, or 
they have processed the death. Now, what would hasten that, that process? What would make it go faster? Um, having to survive the twins taken away from them? That would do it. That would be, it's like a sobering up. This consequences sober up human beings. And, uh, you know, unless, of course, they're in a realm of self-loathing and wanting to destroy their own lives. But generally, when you're facing a consequence, we didn't do this on purpose. They're going to take away our other two. And then we won't even be able to provide for them because we'll lose our jobs. So they quickly embrace the role of uh, victims instead of Madeline being the victim. The second question had to do with the possibility of drugging. That's speculation on my part based on that one part of language where she went to ingestation of something and the fact that she's an anesthesiologist, which is outside the language. The third question about um, in the interview that I had analyzed, when she offered a sarcastic response, we must have hidden her incredibly well. She's embedding those words words that a parent cannot accept. She didn't say, they said we hid her incredibly well. She was doing it from a position of sarcasm or mocking while her child, her little girl, was missing. The origin of the words can tell us whether or not it's an embedded admission. She's forming words herself. And she's using it, presenting it to the audience so that they can mock it as well. People weren't interested in mocking anything. They wanted to find her. They believed the, the mechanics. The problem was the mechanics didn't believe their own words. <laughs> Much like the German prosecutors of the last four years. So a question from Michael. Does Peter think that a lie detector test on the mechanics would make a clearer picture of what happened? It would depend on um, how it's administered and when it's administered. Early on, uh, I think the the Portuguese investigators, they knew. They knew. You can see the, even the behavioral analysis of the parents and what their concerns were. So they knew. You'd have to use a, um, a polygraph examiner who will only use the McCann's words and have to do it back then. You know, years later, they're, they, they're speaking from memory, not of what happened, but of memory of what they previously said over the years. People, you know, they're... They're not going to the place of sensitivity. They're self-referencing. But to use the polygraph early on with only their words, I think they would have caught them. Or at least, you know, it depends on how it's used, but they, they would have seen, yeah, we're right, they're lying. Question from Ask Alec. How does Peter reconcile statement analysis with body language analysis when they have conflicting conclusions? I don't. I trust that words guide me. Um, body language, I think, is very useful, something we all use. But when you have people that are rehearsing and practicing and, and being able to stay calm, it's gonna, it can come out that way. That's why one of the things that we like to look at is the early interviews that they gave. It was the same thing with the, um, the John Benny Ramsey case, especially with the parents where they were able to um, Self-reference. Uh, like I said, and as I told detectives, and they're, they're actually repeating what they said earlier rather than telling about what happened. So I don't rectify it. I find it interesting. 
I think there's so much that impacts body language in terms of chemical influence. Um, it's not all as simple as it sometimes is made out to be. But I, I think they're referring to the behavioral panel, which I think they have a great program. I, I enjoy that. Question from Wendy. Does Peter think there's evidence of the McCann narrative being drawn to a close by the establishment as it runs out of steam to make the McCanns look innocent? And would Peter suggest a UK person with a PhD in discourse analysis might benefit from his statement analysis courses online? And would that support them studying prosecution? I hope that... Um people do find the, the training course to be valuable. Over the years, um, I've worked with a team, including some, some professionals from the United Kingdom who do terrific work, but that I let someone else judge on, on how it works out. One of the things that we've had success on and some of the things that I, I do love doing is identifying anonymous threatening authors. Uh, to me, that's a pinnacle where, where someone receives a threat and we're able to say to them, okay, here are some of the uh, characteristics of the person making this threat. And I have found that if we hit uh, seven out of 10, correct, the person who received it or the entity that received the threat is able to identify, say, oh yeah, we know who that is. So that's the type of work that's done. We do it in, in team analysis. Um, this work, is much easier. It's much easier. So, for example, if I accuse you of saying something horrible about Heather, I can't believe you said that, and you didn't say it. Okay. Eventually, you're going to say right off the bat, Peter, I didn't say that. I know that you said it, and you have to take it back, and you did this, and you did that, and you know, after a while, like this guy is a little bit off here. <laughs> He's not, why, there's a, this wall we call the psychological wall of truth. It doesn't really matter what he says. I didn't say anything about his wife or I didn't steal his money or break into his house. Whatever the accusation is, the psychological wall of truth is there. It makes for very boring interviews and it doesn't go very far because the person didn't do it. And they will say that plainly. And so people will hear their teenagers saying, Mom didn't do that, and they'll drop the pronoun I, where in the English language, that's our psychological presence. I didn't do it. And, and they go right for it. And after a while, even in police interviews, and this is something that I think is a great benefit. Well, why should we believe you? I'm telling the truth. And after a while, it just shuts down. When you see something on television, that's different. Truthful statements generally don't make it on television because there's not a lot there. There's not a lot of excitement there. Um, this fellow, the um, supposed friend of Christian Bruckner, and I apologize if I'm um, mispronouncing Helge Busching, um, he can't talk about it. But I'll give a two-hour interview on television hmm. of stuff I can't talk about. And that caricature of journalism is what I think we've seen from the German prosecutors. You know, did you find evidence or did you not? And if you found evidence, why are you bringing this out in little bits and pieces over the last four years to media instead of bringing it to trial? We have proof that she's dead. Okay, 
bring it to trial. Now, an objection to that is, um, don't prosecutors use uh, media at times to bring out more information from the suspect? And yeah, that's, I think that's a, a good objection. So what we do is we look at each of their announcements and you see how weak the language is that they use. It, it would be similar to me saying, I sort of think that maybe, and that gets translated to headlines as Hyatt says, you know, definitively, we have this proof or that proof. And so as they would make these assertions publicly, 2020, 21, 22, into, into this year, uh, especially over the last four years, they've not backed up anything, not with the evidence, with their own words. So the headline will say German prosecutors and, and something very strong. In fact, I... Uh, Madeline McCann, new evidence linked to suspect found, prosecutor says. And he'll say, well, you know, I don't want to deny that. That's not saying we found evidence. We're, we're going to present the evidence at court. I can't reveal the evidence now, but we're going to present it. Great. We want to hear that. So we go back and forth, back and forth with that. And after a while, people start saying, you know, I'm getting bored of hearing about your different evidence and your different bombshell reports, nothing ever comes of it, but it's your own language that people recognize. You don't believe your own words. Why are you doing this? And the last part of the question that someone had was about, um, is this bringing it to a close? I don't know. I don't know um, what's behind some of these things. I think when you're looking at um, government employees, elected officials, if they take a position they don't want to change that position and they'll just keep backing it forever. But I don't really understand um, culturally what's behind all this. Peter, we've gone over 30 minutes. There's hundreds of questions coming. We've answered a fraction of them. I know you've got another commitment. Um, I'll, I'll wrap it up here for you. I don't want to keep you on. So, viewers, um, Peter's website link, Peter's Twitter link is down there. And perhaps, Peter, when you've got more time, would you be able to perhaps come back on and, and do a part two and we could answer the rest of these, some of the rest of these questions? Yes, that'd be fine. I, I um, have a bunch of quotes from um, the German prosecutor, get his name proper, properly here, um, Volters, that I think um, people say, wow, that sounds pretty weak. Um, if you have something, you have something in it. If you don't, you don't. Why would you parse words in, in front of cameras over and over? So, yeah, thank you for having me on. It was good. Well, really appreciate you spending time with us, and hopefully, we can see you again soon. And you take care, my friend. Cheers. Thank you. Take care. Cheers.